Well, hello, hello, anatomy nerds. Welcome to another episode of Anatomy Bites, the podcast where we talk about anatomy in bite-sized little chunks and try to bring those anatomic terms into more real-life examples using biomechanics and other things. So before we get started, I just want to share some exciting news for the podcast, which is that we have had a recent increase in listeners and subscribers, and so I just wanted to give a shout out to all of the old and new listeners to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It means a lot to me that you find this content interesting and relevant for whatever reason that you're here for. And just to kind of go through, I was looking at the analytics the other night um, to see kind of where everybody was listening from. And turns out we have listeners in over 55 countries. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just to go through some of the countries here, um, I know we have listeners in Hong Kong and Australia. Shout out to you guys who have reached out to me on social media. We also have listeners from India, Spain, Denmark, Finland. I'm just going through a couple. Argentina, Mexico, Lithuania, um, Thailand, Malta, Turkey. Been there, beautiful place. Georgia, Iraq, Malaysia, Isle of Man. I mean, wow, thank you so much. It's such an honor to have you here. So let's go ahead and get started. So tonight we are recording on April 1st. It is a beautiful, beautiful night here in Southern California. I'm broadcasting from Huntington Beach. I'm on my one week of spring break right now and I have to tell you the weather could not be better for spring break. It's just beautiful, it's not too humid, nice and sunny, great beach weather. I actually went on a pretty long bike ride today. Some of you know that I'm a cyclist. I went on a 30 mile bike ride today, which took about two hours. And um, yeah, it's just beautiful to be here. So without further ado, we are talking tonight about a very popular topic in the fitness world, which is the hamstrings. Now, as a yoga teacher, um, I was a yoga teacher for eight years prior to COVID when uh, my gym shut down. But as a yoga teacher, probably the muscle that people talk about the most in terms of the students feeling limited by a certain muscle or group of muscles in this case, it was the hamstrings. Students are always complaining about their tight hamstrings and I say tight with air quotes. Um, tell you more about that later, but uh, everybody's got tight hamstrings in the world. <laughs> so if you feel like your hamstrings are keeping you from getting that downward facing dog in the proper form that you see on Instagram and you really want to replicate, I'm going to give you some tips on how to actually improve your down dog and um, 
doing so in a way where biomechanics is going to work in your favor. So, and speaking of which, before we get started, part of the excitement about the hamstrings, or rather part of the limitation with the hamstrings, is that it is, they are um, two joint muscles. And so if you haven't listened yet to the episode from last week, the episode about the gastrocnemius and the soleus, I would go back and listen to that because I talked about a very important concept with two joint muscles, which is the concept of passive insufficiency and its counterpart, active insufficiency. And so if you wanna get an understanding of how the hamstrings are aided and abetted or limited by active insufficiency and passive insufficiency. Go back and listen to the prior episode and that will give you a a bit of a clue on what happens with two joint muscles. But just to give a brief overview, when you have a two joint muscle, such as uh, biceps femoris long head, you have action that can occur at one or two joints. In this case, go into more detail later, but biceps femoris long head is your lateral hamstring that can extend the hip or flex the knee. It can do both at the same time, but it really doesn't work as well when you're asking it to go into full range at two joints at the same time. Or if you're stretching and you're trying to get full range of motion in the opposite direction, doing so at a two joint muscle will limit you in that direction because it doesn't want you to have full range of motion in the opposite direction in the stretch at the same time due to the nature of being a two joint muscle. So I'll talk more about that later related to the down dog. And as well, um, there's another concept that I want to explore with the hamstrings, which is what is an eccentric contraction and why do we care? Because as you go into your anatomy and your biomechanics study, you will learn about the different types of muscle contractions. You will learn about uh, concentric muscle contractions, isometric muscle contractions, and eccentric muscle contractions. And I will use an example from gait, which is the act of walking, to tell you a little bit more about eccentric contractions. So, but before we can go into all of that, We do need to hear a message from our sponsor real quick, and then we'll come back with those O's, I's, and A's. Hang tight. And we're back, and let's dive right into the origins, insertions, innervations, and actions of the group of muscles called the hamstrings. Now, this is going to seem like I'm talking about four muscles, but really I'm talking about three. The reason being is that one of the muscles, your lateral hamstrings, actually has two heads that have different actions. So hang tight there. The following reading is from The Anatomy of the Human Body by Dr. Henry Gray, 20th edition. This is from, I wanna say 1923. It's old, it's in the public domain, which is why I use it, because you can find this edition download it from the internet and not pay a cent. That's how public domain works here in the United States, and it usually applies to old textbooks and other works that are beyond, I wanna say, 90 years old. 
additionally, I want to just throw in that because this is an old text, you may be, hmm, I don't know about the accuracy of this information, but I want to let you know that the anatomist back in the day did a lot of the precursor work for us. And yes, there has been cadaveric or cadaver research, of course. Um, so if I do come across something that I find in my experience as a student, I have learned more updated or different information that might be helpful to you, I'll pipe it in. But for the most part, we're going to give credit to Gray here, okay? So anyway, let's move forward with biceps femoris. Going from the attachments. The biceps femoris, remember biceps meaning two heads, is situated on the posterior and lateral aspect of the thigh. It has two heads of origin. One, the long head arises from the lower and inner impression on the back part of the tuberosity of the ischium by a tendon common to it and the semitendinosus, one of the medial hamstrings. So they share a tendon, keep that in mind. And from the lower part of the sacrotuberous ligament. The other head, the short head, arises from the lateral lip of the linea aspera between the adductor magnus and vastus lateralis extending up almost as high as the insertion of gluteus maximus, oh my god, from the lateral prolongation of the linea aspera to within five centimeters of the lateral condyle, and from the lateral intermuscular septum. The fibers of the long head, going back to long head, form a fusiform belly, which passes obliquely downward and lateralward across the sciatic nerve to end in an aponeurosis, which covers the posterior surface of the muscle, and receives fibers of the short head. This aponeurosis becomes gradually contracted into a tendon, which is inserted into the lateral side of the head of the fibula, and by a small slip into the lateral condyle of the tibia. At its insertion, the tendon divides into two portions, which embrace the fibular collateral ligament of the knee joint. From the posterior border of the tendon, a thin expansion is given off to the fascia of the leg. The tendon of insertion of this muscle forms the lateral hamstring. The common peroneal nerve descends along its medial border. Gray wants us to know that there are variations in some people, the short head may be absent. Additional heads may also arise from the ischial tuberosity, the linea aspera, the medial supracondylar ridge of the femur, or from various other parts. A slip may also pass to the gastrocnemius. So Gray's just reminding us here that not everybody's anatomy is exactly the same, but in the most of us, there is a long head and there is a short head and they combine into a conjoined tendon that inserts down with the fibula and the other insertions that we already mentioned. Now, as you may have noticed back up in these origins, I did mention that biceps femoris long head shares a tendon with semitendinosus. So let's talk about semitendinosus. The semitendinosus, remarkable for the great length of its tendon of insertion, is situated at the posterior and medial aspect of the thigh. It is a medial hamstring. 
It arises from the lower and medial impression on the tuberosity of the ischium by a tendon common to it and the long head of the biceps femoris. It also arises from an aponeurosis, which connects the adjacent surfaces of the two muscles to the extent of about 7.5 centimeters from their origin. The muscle is fusiform and ends a little below the middle of the thigh in a long round tendon, which lies along the medial side of the popliteal fossa. It then curves around the medial condyle of the tibia and passes over the tibial collateral ligament of the knee joint, from which it is separated by a bursa, and it is inserted into the upper part of the medial surface of the body of the tibia, nearly as far forward as its anterior crest. At its insertion, it gives off from its lower border a prolongation to the deep fascia of the leg and lies behind the tendon of the sartorius and below that of the gracilis to which it is united. A tendinous intersection is usually observed at about the middle of the muscle. Moving forward onto semimembranosus. This is the body of semitendinosus. The semimembranosus, so called from its membranous tendon of origin, is situated at the back and medial side of the thigh. It arises by a thick tendon from the upper and outer impression on the tuberosity of the ischium, above and lateral to the biceps femoris and semitendinosus. The tendon of origin expands into an aponeurosis which covers the upper part of the anterior surface of the muscle. From this aponeurosis, muscular fibers arise and converge onto another aponeurosis, which covers the lower part of the posterior surface of the muscle and contracts into the tendon of insertion. It is inserted mainly into the horizontal groove on the posterior medial aspect of the medial condyle of the tibia. The tendon of insertion gives off certain fibrous expansions, one of considerable size, passes upward and lateralward to be inserted into the back part of the lateral condyle of the femur, forming part of the oblique popliteal ligament of the knee joint. A second is continued downward to the fascia, which covers the popliteus muscle, while a few fibers join the tibial collateral ligament of the joint and the fascia of the leg. The muscle, semimembranosus, overlaps with the upper part of the popliteal vessels. More variations that Gray wants us to know about. Semimembranosus may be reduced or absent, or double, arising mainly from the sacrotuberous ligament and giving a slip to the femur or adductor magnus. The tendons of insertion of the two preceding muscles, the semitendinosus and semimembranosus, form the medial hamstrings. Now let's go into innervation. And for this, I am going to refer to another text because it goes into slightly more detail. Reading from Muscles, Testing and Function with Posture and Pain, fifth edition, from the very wonderful Florence Kendall et al. First thing to know is that the biceps femoris long head and the biceps femoris short head are innervated by two different nerves. So keep that in mind when we talk about function 
and when we talk about nerve damage, okay? You don't necessarily have to lose all your hamstrings if you have a more proximal, for example, tibial nerve innervation issue because we've got fibular or peroneal nerve over here at short head still working for us, but I digress. All right, so biceps femoris long head is innervated by the peripheral nerve known as the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve from the nerve roots L5, S1, S2, and S3. Biceps femoris short head, as I just mentioned, is innervated by the peroneal branch, also known as the fibular branch of the sciatic nerve. Yes, it goes by either name. L5, S1, S2. Slightly different nerve roots. Semitendinosis is innervated by the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve, L4, L5, S1, and S2. Semimembranosis, innervated by the tibial branch of the sciatic nerve, L4, L5, S1, S2. So thank you to the fine peeps making up the Kendall edition for those innervations in particular. Now, I mentioned very briefly that we won't lose all of our hamstrings if we have a proximal tibial nerve injury. And as you know now, that is because the short head of biceps femoris is innervated by fibular nerve, AKA peroneal nerve. So that is the benefit of having that sciatic nerve being split off into two different portions because it doesn't mean that you necessarily lose everything if you have a nerve injury that only affects the tibial portion. This is very important when you talk about stance and gait because we have a lot of muscles in the leg that we depend on and if the sciatic nerve was just one big old nerve that didn't split into two portions, a proximal ner nerve injury of that sciatic nerve would be very, very bad, very bad. I mean, a tibial nerve injury would still be bad, but you know, we'd at least still have those peroneal innervated muscles. So, and let's talk about what actions occur with these muscles. Why is this important? Okay, well, the hamstrings as a group flex the leg upon the thigh, going back to the words of Gray. What does this mean? Well, in antiquated terminology, the word leg actually refers to everything from the knee down. So basically, the tibia, the fibula, etc. So when you talk about leg versus thigh, thigh means femur, leg means below the knee. So the hamstring muscle group flex the leg upon the thigh. This is knee flexion. When the knee is semi-flexed, the biceps femoris, in consequence of its oblique direction, rotates the leg slightly outward. 
and the semitendinosus, and to a slight extent, the semimembranosus, rotates the leg inward, assisting the popliteus. What does this mean? That because of their position and the direction of their fibers, they do not just engage in knee flexion. Biceps femoris will also laterally rotate or externally rotate the knee, meaning the tibia and fibula. The medial hamstrings, due to their insertions and their direction of pull, will medially rotate or internally rotate the tibia at the knee. So know that, yeah, your knee does mostly just hinge into flexion and extension, but there is a slight teeny tiny bit of internal or external rotation that occurs at the knee as well. We don't talk about it a lot, but it's there. Back to gray. Taking their fixed point from below, these muscles serve to support the pelvis upon the head of the femur and to draw the trunk directly backward, as in raising it from the stooping position or in feats of strength when the body is thrown backward in the form of an arch. As already indicated earlier on in the text, complete flexion of the hip cannot be affected unless the knee joint is also flexed on account of the shortness of the hamstring muscles. Bingo. This is a perfect segue into passive and active insufficiency. Again, reference the prior episode for a full explanation of that. But let's just take a pause and talk about what is happening here. We have two joint muscles. The hamstrings are extending the hip and flexing the knee. Because of the direction of pull, we've already talked about the rotation of the knee joint. Now, there's one thing that I wanna add in from Kendall that Gray kind of doesn't really talk about, which is also rotation of the femur that happens due to the hamstrings as well. So, because of the position again of the insertions and the direction of pull of the muscle biceps femoris is also going to slightly laterally rotate the hip external rotation of the hip slight not a lot the medial hamstrings semitendinosus semimembranosus are going to have a slight internal rotation moment okay of the hip so if you want to just break it down into some bullet points, biceps femoris, long head, hip extensor, hip lateral rotator, together with short head, knee flexor, knee lateral rotator. Okay, key point here, if you're talking about actions separate between long and short head of biceps, you have to note that short head does not extend the hip or act on the hip in any way. Short head only acts on the knee. So if you're talking about biceps femoris acting on the knee, it is combination long and short head or just short head alone, period. Going back to the medial hamstrings, internal rotator of the hip and the knee extensor of the hip, flexor of the knee, both. Got it? So, bringing it back to Gray, he's talking about 
on account of the shortness of the hamstring muscles. Complete flexion of the hip cannot be affected unless the knee joint is also flexed. And this is where I want to talk about downward facing dog. So, downward facing dog. If you haven't attended a yoga class or you haven't seen any yoga postures, yoga, yoga asana, it's only one of the eight branches of yoga, by the way. But if you haven't seen the yoga posture, downward facing dog, basically your body is making a pyramid in which your pelvis is pointing upward toward the sky, your hands are pressed into the floor, and your feet are also pressed into the floor. So your belly is facing toward the floor, your pelvis or your butt <laughs> facing toward the sky, and your body's making like a triangle shape. Now, this is the living example of what Gray is talking about right here. And this is due to the passive insufficiency of the hamstrings. So earlier on, in the very, very, very beginning of this episode, I mentioned that constantly in the last eight years as a yoga teacher, my students' biggest complaint was their quote unquote tight hamstrings. My hamstrings are so tight and I can't get into a forward fold or a downward facing dog. I can't touch my toes, blah, blah, blah. You've probably maybe said those words yourself. This is a living example of passive insufficiency because you are asking your hamstrings to stretch so long that they are allowing the opposite of their action, their concentric action, to occur at two joints at the same time. But the muscle is not long enough to allow full range of motion into that stretch at the same time at both joints. That is the, the crux of the problem with two joint muscles. They are so crucial to our function in so many ways, but they work best when they're not asking for full range of two joints at the same time. They like to live in the happy medium in between a little bit of action at one joint, a little bit of action at the other joint, or 100% at one joint and zero at the other. So when we are going into a downward facing dog, maybe you want to practice this with me because it's kind of fun to act it out and it's kind of helpful to get that visual. So if you feel like joining me in this example, pop yourself up into a downward facing dog by first coming onto hands and knees, and then tucking your toes and lifting your knees, sending your hips into the sky. Now, if you're not by a mirror, if you're not by a window where you can kind of see your reflection, you may not see, you know, how straight your arms are and how straight your back are, et cetera, et cetera. But you can probably already feel how straight or not straight your legs are. And the reason is, is that a major assumption when going into downward facing dog, just because of the way that people have seen this posture performed, is they think that they have to have their legs completely straight at the knee. And I will give a shout out to one of my favorite teachers whose name is Diane Bondi, who was the first person to kind of make me realize that you don't always have to do what the pictures on Instagram tell you to do. 
So Diane Bondi is a yoga teacher in Canada who focuses primarily on making yoga accessible to all types of bodies. She is a wonderful, wonderful person. I encourage you to look her up online. But back to what Ms. Bondi was teaching is that in Downward Facing Dog or in Forward Fold, basically in any position where you are asking your hips to flex, so you're stretching that extension of the hip that the hamstrings would want to do. So you're asking the hamstrings to release that extension at the hip so that you can flex. You're probably most likely going to need to bend your knees a little bit because passive insufficiency. Your body's not going to really let you get into full hip extension and full knee, ex uh, excuse me, full hip flexion and full knee extension at the same time. So this is a moment to let go of the image that you have of what your down dog should look like and to practice safely and healthily in your body. And the great thing about softening your knees in this position is that you can play with bending and straightening little bits at a time. Now, backing up a bit more, a bit further, into this concept of quote unquote tight hamstrings. And um, coming from a physical therapist or physiotherapist perspective, uh, I just want to mention the word tight is not really an accepted anatomical term in the medical practice. And the reason is, is that most likely what it is, is that your hamstrings are short. We tend to think of tight, quote unquote, tight muscles as being like rock hard, which can often get confused with strength, but to be honest, you can have a short muscle that is also weak at the same time. So it's a good practice now to get the word tight out of your vocabulary if you are going into physical therapy. Just remove tight muscle out, out, out of your world and start using the terminology short because again, short muscle can still be weak. So we don't want to use the word tight because it can make people think that we're talking about tension, which can relate to strength, but we don't want to go there. So that's my, that's my soapbox. Get the word tight out of your uh, muscle vocabulary. We talked a little bit about downward facing dog and how you can improve that by simply softening your knees so that you can get more of that hip flexion angle, get your booty up toward the sky a little bit more, your pelvis a little higher. And then if you wanna play with stretching out those hamstrings and as well your gastroc from the prior episode as well in this position, cause you're also in mega dorsiflexion at your ankle, I digress. You can start to straighten your knee, extend your knee little bits at a time. And that will start to increase the stretch on both the hamstring group as well as the gastroc. So there we go, a little lesson on passive insufficiency in action to go on last week. Now, brought you here today to talk about the hamstrings and to talk about eccentric muscle contraction and why we care. So realize that this is kind of bridging off of multiple topics here today, but the hamstrings are such a great place to do this learning and you may be wondering what the heck is an eccentric contraction and why oh why oh why do i care well 
Let's talk about it. So without going into too much detail on the different types of muscle contractions, because again, just like last week, that's gonna bring me into sarcomeres and all that stuff, and I don't really wanna take up the time to do that in this space. But I just wanna say that when you think of a muscle contraction from just you know, doing bicep curls or something like that, most of the time, when we think of a muscle contraction, we think of the concentric muscle contraction, which occurs when the muscle is shortening in length. A muscle contraction which shortens the muscle's length is a concentric muscle contraction. Now, if we were to take dumbbells and hold them, like say take, take, a, take a dumbbell that's a little bit a little bit too heavy to be comfortable for you, but it's still something that you're able to hold onto without dropping it to the floor and just keep a 90 degree angle at your biceps. And this time I'm talking about the biceps in your, in your arms, <laughs> biceps brachii. So if you were not able to do a bicep curl with this dumbbell that you are now holding, but you're able to hold it steady right there without going up or down, you, my friend, are doing an isometric contraction, which is simply a contraction of those sarcomeres without going anywhere. Iso means same, metric means length. So when you're doing a contraction of a muscle that remains the same length, it is isometric. Now, that leaves one more type of muscle contraction category to talk about. We now have eccentric. Now I want you to take and replace that dumbbell with something that is now too heavy for you. Not so heavy that you're immediately gonna drop it to the floor though. Just a little bit heavier than the one you were just holding, right? Maybe just two pounds more, maybe three pounds more. You're now gonna have your elbow, which you're trying to hold at that 90 degree angle and you're gonna slowly start extending your elbow because that weight is just a little bit too heavy for you now. And so you're not able to hold that isometric contraction anymore and the gravity and the weight is just pulling you into elbow extension. But you don't drop it straight to the floor, right? Well that, my friends, is your eccentric contraction, which is when the muscle is contracting, there's tension in that muscle. It is doing work, but it is lengthening at the same time. The overlap in the fibers of the sarcomere is slowly getting farther and farther apart. So this is the total opposite of your concentric contraction. And you might be wondering, like why the heck would you need a muscle to contract and lengthen at the same time? Like when I first learned this concept, I did not understand. I was like, okay, great. There's this type of contraction that we probably never use. And it's totally dumb to learn about because it's just a thing that I'm never gonna need to know. This is so far from the truth though, because once you get into physical therapy or any kind of biomechanics lessons, you're gonna start to realize that our relationship 
with the ground is completely dependent on fighting gravity. So, going back to that example, when you were really, really trying to hold up that weight and it was just, you were just overcome, you were trying to fight gravity in that moment. And gravity ultimately did win, but you really fought hard. And that is what our body is doing all day long. Anytime that your body in an upright position, for example, is not in perfect posture where the plumb line, I'm gonna go through it just really quick. If you're standing with your feet stacked pretty much right under your hips, your shoulders relaxed, standing tall, gaze forward. The plumb line of gravity pull should go straight from the whole of your ears, your external auditory meatus, through the acromion, down bisecting the middle of your torso to just a little bit in front of your hip, just a little bit behind the middle of the knee, and a little bit in front of your ankle, your lateral malleolus to be exact. The plumb line is the place where your body is doing the least amount of work to stay upright. And in fact, when you are just in this upright, perfect posture position, really, 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 the only muscle that is really doing any work here, measured by EMG studies, is your soleus. So if you listen to the last episode and you heard me say that if you didn't have a soleus, and you were standing in line at the grocery store and your soleus quit working, you'd fall flat on your face. That's why, <laughs> because when you're in quiet stance, as we call it, it is called quiet stance. When you're in that perfect upright position, the only muscle really, really, really doing any work to keep you there, besides of course your diaphragm and your cardiac muscle, but we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about postural muscles. The only muscle keeping you upright in quiet stance, if you are in proper alignment, should be your soleus. What the heck does this have to do with hamstrings? I'm gonna tell you. We are usually not in this position, first and foremost. We are usually in some kind of wackadoo alignment because we adopt weird postures, we you know, tend to curl forward if we're at the computer a lot. We have a lot of expression in our body language. So we even kind of like, there's this, this one thing that you can kind of do like the sassy teenager hip where like you're sort of bent at the, you're flexed at the hip and the knee and offloaded on one leg and the rest of your weight is totally on the other leg and your hip is kind of out to the side. You know, like when you're a sassy teenager. So, there's a lot of weird postures that we develop and what happens when we get out of that alignment, that quiet stance alignment, is that suddenly our postural muscles have to kick in to fight gravity. What are they doing? Eccentric contraction. For example, your spinal extensor muscles, when you develop a forward head posture, and you're, you're looking down, 
you're texting, you're scrolling Instagram, you're queuing up a podcast, what are you doing? You're pulling yourself into spinal flexion. The only reason why you don't melt into being a noodle on the floor is because your spinal extensors are fighting so hard, fighting so hard to eccentrically contract, to not let that happen, okay? Until you move into a different position. Now, the hamstrings are such a great example of eccentric contraction when we are in the gait cycle. So when we are performing gait, which is one of our most, if not most functional activities that we can do, which is just walking, there is a cycle, there is a sequence, there is a pattern, and there are expected muscles turning on in different phases. And we may not think of the hamstrings as really having much to do with gait. Why? Because, I mean, yeah, you're doing some hip extension, but not like a ton. You're not really doing a lot of knee flexion, except for, you know, passively. So why the heck do you use your hamstrings while you're in gait? They are eccentrically breaking you. They are decelerating you. Your hamstrings, which largely kick in in terminal swing, which is the, the part of your gait cycle where your leg is kicked forward and your knee is pretty straight and you're in neutral or maybe a little bit more dorsiflexion and you're just about to hit the ground to take your next step, that, if you were to freeze in time, is terminal swing. It's the end of your swing phase. And the only reason right here that your leg doesn't just keep going to the sky, like if you're like trying to do a bicycle kick of a soccer ball, for example, the only reason why your body doesn't just like flip over in time and space and you're able to break and then take that next step is because your hamstrings are decelerating the hip flexion that is happening at that swing and the knee extension that is happening. So your hamstrings are actually preventing your knee from going into hyperextension here. And they are also preventing your hip from going into massive hip flexion, which would just throw your body completely off balance, right? If you were just to keep kicking to the sky with every step. And by the way, that would require a lot of energy of your hip flexors and it would be extremely inefficient. So, although you may not think that your hamstrings are super active during gait, they are, they are just doing a lengthening eccentric contraction at the end of terminal swing. And that is the example of how the hamstrings kick in and eccentrically contract during gait. And in true fashion of a PT, I have just been walking around my house and performing this to an audience of my sleeping dogs on the couch. So if I'm a little out of breath sounding, it's because I was actually going through all the different gait motions while explaining this. So true definition of a nerd over here, living it, learning it, explaining it. Anyway, so I realize this is a bit of a long episode here, lots to digest. So I'm gonna end it here and let it go. But I just want to say that it's been a pleasure 
explaining this process to you tonight. Thanks again for all the new listeners and thank you to everyone who has shared this podcast on social media platforms. I am so very grateful for the sharing of the knowledge. And if anybody wants to reach out to me on social media, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, and I am now, oh my God, on TikTok, (laughs) all under the same handle, at Nikki-Ray, that's at N-I-K-K-I-D-A-S-H-R-A-E. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. Bye-bye. This show is written, produced, hosted, and recorded by Nikki Ray Alkima, Doctor of Physical Therapy. Moral support and occasional snoring provided by the resident pit bulls, also known as the Itty Bitty Pity Committee, Vita and Zoe. Anatomy readings are sourced from the United States public domain text, Anatomy of the Human Body, 20th edition, by Henry Gray and Warren H. Lewis. Opinions and commentary are my own and do not represent any institution or professional affiliation. Lastly, this show is for educational purposes only and should not be construed as medical advice.